without question, consumers are incredibly savvy. And I caution any and all brand marketers to underestimate them at their own peril, right? They're tuned in, they're educated, they're paying attention, they're asking questions, and you never want to take consumers lightly. You want to evoke excitement, you want to compel them to action. And that's not easy to do in this sort of digitally equipped world that we live in. So authenticity plays through. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to a new episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. If you had to guess what my absolute favorite thing about marketing is, and if my intro didn't give it away already, it would be without a doubt branding every single time. I remember early on in my professional career working at a tech company in the marketing department and dipping my toes into different aspects of marketing. I did partnership marketing, product marketing, event marketing, and then got to learn under our CMO at the time, who was also an esteemed brand marketer in her own regard, the ins and outs of branding and brand marketing, and I just fell in love. Now, I pulled this from the internet, but would agree this is a pretty good oversight into what is brand marketing and what does it entail. Brand marketing describes a long-term strategic plan to continuously boost a brand's recognition and reputation. The goal of brand marketing is to develop an ever-growing base of loyal customers. This is achieved by continually and consistently communicating the brand's identity and values in meaningful and engaging ways. Within a company, brand marketing is an all-encompassing, constantly evolving strategy. It defines a brand's approach to communications, sales, and products by promoting products and services in a way that highlights the overall brand. I think I resonated with the simplistic framing of brands like Coca-Cola or Nike. People recognize a company by its brand name, logo, slogan, as well as colors. So what goes into building that out and then implementing it across multiple touch points is, to me, the essence of brand marketing. I know we've talked about it frequently on the podcast before, too, so it shouldn't be something new to consider. But I think in a market like cannabis that we can all agree on can be saturated, the brand that you are building, the vessel, the look, feel, colors, texture, why, and what is what differentiates brand A from brands B, C, D, etc. I spend a lot of my time fascinated at what makes a sticky brand, what draws the consumer's attention, what resonates with them, and why. So naturally, when it comes to industry professionals to look up to, there has been one on my radar for a while that I am delighted to finally introduce you to today on the podcast. His name is Sam Arellano, and he is a dominating presence in the industry for his brand work. Sam is an award-winning strategic brand marketer with experience that spans sporting goods, consumer electronics, and streetwear. 
His creativity has landed him gigs with Nike, InCase, and Lululemon, to name a few. And prior to starting ABC Brand Design, Sam was the chief marketing officer at Candescent, where he architected multi-million dollar high-margin brands. And he's been called one of the most prolific marketers in the cannabis industry. In our conversation, we reflected on Sam's experience at Candescent and how that has compared and influenced the brand work he's doing now under his own firm. And he was also at Hall of Flowers at the time we recorded this, and we touched base on his observations at that event and how branding can help impact the longevity of a business in the cannabis industry. I'm very excited to have Sam on the show today, so please join me by lighting one up, and let's welcome Sam to the show. Hello, my name is Sam Arlano. I am the owner, founder of Arlano Brand Co., or ABC Brand Design for short. My background comes very much a very pursuit of passion projects, entrepreneurial background, as well as uh, global brand marketing for category leaders in consumer electronics and sporting goods and apparel, specifically streetwear. My journey into cannabis is the one I like to tell. I'll say that I wasn't looking at cannabis necessarily at the time. So I, I often say, you know, cannabis found me. I didn't necessarily find cannabis, which is kind of a fun and unique perspective. So early in my career, I'll say it must have been the early 2000s. So midway point, I guess, in my career, not so much early, I had a creative agency here based in Los Angeles, a different one. And at the time we serviced Nike quite a bit. And fast forward to 2019, it was actually someone who I'd worked with before at Nike who was doing a stint at Candescent as a consultant. And so it was through that relationship that I was introduced into the opportunity at Candescent to come in as first as the interim CMO. After about three months, Adrian, the CEO, asked me to stay on. And I stayed on for about two years in the chief marketing officer role here in California. Candescent for... Uh, those listeners and viewers who may not be familiar is a category leading ultra premium flower brand here in California. It's very top shelf indoor grown flower. There at Candescent, we created a portfolio of brands now known as a house of brands for them. And so uh, that was fun in the two years that I spent there. And we ended up launching a couple of brands during the pandemic, which was, you know, not without its challenges. I'm sure that, you know, for your listeners who have done something similar, if operating cannabis is not difficult enough, try doing it during uh, a pandemic. So, right. yeah. And so it was uh, January of last year, 2021, that Candesa and myself went in different directions. I loved the team there, great group of executives, left on great terms, obviously, and started what is now referred to as Arlana Branco, or ABC Brand Design for short. It was shortly thereafter starting this agency, Agency 2.0, for me in this instance, that about three other people that reported to me at Candescent decided to come and join our team. And so that was nice and, and made me feel quite good that they wanted to continue our journey together. And so it's been about a year and a half that ABC Brand Design has been working exclusively in the cannabis space across the country, which was uh, part of my reason for wanting to try something new. And it's uh, at the time, the blue wave, there was a lot of conversation about administrative turnover that was happening in Washington. I thought the timing was good. And here we are just about a year and a half later and things are going great. And here I am talking to you, Shada. This is awesome. I know that we had connected earlier when I was at Candescent, but so happy to be on the podcast. I'm just so thrilled to have you on the podcast. I like you highlighted, Candescent is such a aspirational brand for so many people in the industry. They're a market setter. And so being able to 
come from that world from your perspective and now to go out on your own, not, you know, naively, right? Because you come from this agency branding design background, but to now extend yourself creatively into the cannabis space beyond just the California cannabis market, I think is really fascinating and fun. I think we're going to have a really great conversation today because I saw some of the brands that you have on your roster that you've been working with, Seed and Smith being one of them. Mm-hmm. Huge fan of their brand. They're out in Colorado for the listeners who are unaware. And it is cool to see your design, your creativity bleed into all these other brands and kind of bringing them to life. And so I guess to kind of start the conversation off, to go back a little bit before we go forward, you know, what was it like working within to whatever you can, you know, kind of communicate, maybe we can speak more abstractly, but coming from such a heavy hitter like Candescent, the structure of a business, I mean, you referred to, you know, the team as having executives. I think these are languages that come from traditional industry and business that are for sure being applied into the cannabis industry, but it's a little bit of a, you know, nuanced evolution. There's certainly multi-state operators. There's these large brands, Candescent being an example of one of them. But let's kind of talk from that perspective. What is it like being in a cannabis opportunity that is more than just, let's say, one particular product or one skew or kind of one geographical aspect or location to working with this kind of like behemoth of a brand. I mean, when you stepped in, I'm sure, right, it was already candescent. So you were coming in and breathing more life into this beast that is continuously growing and becoming something, especially to your, you know, illusion of them evolving into having a house of brands. I just want to get a pulse of, of what does it look like in a brand that scale operating in the cannabis industry from a marketing perspective? How much of it is really being influenced from the actual cannabis industry or how much of that is being influenced from maybe traditional but not cannabis traditional influences as you're trying to do marketing campaigns and packaging and talking to this new consumer. I mean, California has a very educated and loyal customer base to certain brands. So how do you penetrate into that particular market with that background of a business? Yeah. Let me see if I can try and unpack that. But there was a lot there. We'll start with operations and sort of organizational structure. I think you were making a point about what I would call there is the legacy side of the business, right? Amazing growers, cultivators, scientists, lab technicians, people who really understand plant medicine, growing some of the best product in the world, really here in California in particular. And so interestingly enough, this will tie into sort of our thesis and our reason for being, you know, here at ABC Brand Design. And 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 that is speaking to the operations and the structure and you alluding to the fact that Candescent is a behemoth, you know, behemoth is relative, right? So maybe big fish or medium fish in, in the California pond of which, you know, California is, I think, the last, the, the sixth largest economy in, in the world. But when compared to a TerraSand or a CuraLeaf or something like that, it's, it's not comparable in any regard. And then that being said, Candescent, it was, and it remains to be a category leader. And within that structure, I found sort of on the executive leadership side, you have uh, very well-educated individuals. We're talking HBS grads. We're talking Kellogg grads. People have a relationship with the plant, if you will, 
but are really looking at time horizons and looking at opportunities to create, you know, wealth for themselves individually and as well as their shareholders, right? And their investors. And that was mostly the case at Candescent. And one of the reasons that it really attracted me there is because I wanted to learn about fundraising. I wanted to learn about all the series that were needed to kind of grow sort of the vertical operation. And so at Candesa, my experience was really sort of weighted towards that executive side. At the time that I joined, there was quite a number of executives on the team because we were looking at multi-state expansion. We even had executives for lobbying our state, you know, sort of legislature, all of that stuff. Unfortunately, late in 2019, the capital markets dried up. And over the course of the next two years, we had to run the business as a solvent business. And I'm happy to report by the time that I left that we were cash flow positive and beyond break even. So that is a bit of a unicorn, at least in California cannabis. And more and more people are doing it now with different types of operational structure. You might have heard some of your guests refer to it as like asset light or something along those lines. So it's great to hear with all of the excess taxation that we have in California that there are still some business people out there who are clawing away at a marginal profit. And so my experience at Candesa was one of, you know, very forward thinking relative to, you know, building something that was going to be valuable as an asset, as part of a portfolio, should, you know, the publicly traded companies coming from the East want to look West for acquisition. So that was really our goal. At the same time, on the other pole, on the other end of the spectrum, we, we did have amazing cultivators and, you know, people who knew the product really, really well. Where we struggled to some degree and where I found a lot of organizations struggle is the operational sort of acumen that needs to exist internally in order to bring product to market in an effective and an efficient way. In California, we have a proliferation of brands because we have an outsized supply. An outsized supply is what I intended to say. So with that, there are people who believe a logo and a jar label creates a brand and or swag creates a brand. And that's, in my opinion, that's not the case. And in my experience, that's not the case. And so we have upwards of a thousand brands. That's no joke here in California. And I thought, well, that's not sustainable. Retailers here in California, if you miss a ship, like a shipment, like there's, there's so many other brands that want to steal that shelf space. So I thought, well, that's not sustainable from a business perspective, because there's going to be variability in harvest and things of that nature, even manufacturing. So I said, well, what can we do to support the industry in a way that we thought would be valuable or invaluable? And so our thesis and our reason for being, and hopefully this addresses your first question, is that is we saw an opportunity within the marketplace that said, if we can do what we did at Candescent, and that is educate our sales staff, write educational materials, do all of the necessary blocking and tackling that marketers have to do in California cannabis, as well as amazing creative, as well as amazing brand design and brand engineering and value props and all of those things. If we can do that at the same high level that we did for Candescent, would that be a value for prospective clients across the country? And I'm thankful to say that that thesis was checked out in year one, and we had an amazing year one. You referenced Seton Smith as one of our clients. They were great. We vertical operation in Colorado. We created a retail store for them, which is a flagship store in Louisville, Colorado, which we're very proud of. We launched in 2021. We also launched a B2B business that was primarily a cultivation in Greenfield, California, created that brand as well, and then got to work with a streetwear icon, Hanf, which is for some of the listeners, I, I guess the closest proxy would be like a Supreme, 
This is a uh, 20-year-old streetwear skateboard brand with wholly owned stores around the world. And so they're coming to market this year. And so they tapped us, I would say largely because what you alluded to earlier, and that was we have you know, our background and my background in particular coming from you know, traditional, I guess you would call it CPG, but having that sort of intersective art, music, fashion, entertainment. So it was nice to work with Huff and get that kind of nod. I'm just so enamored. I mean, looking at the work that you've done both through Candescent and especially through ABC Design, it is so cool. I don't know if that's like the proper term, but just like as a consumer, like when you see something, you're like, that looks sexy. That looks very like high level. It looks also approachable, maybe perhaps to some consumers where it just like fits and it flows. I mean, using Seaton Smith as the example, right? I'm familiar with that brand in a different capacity. And so then to see, and I have not gotten a chance to go to Colorado. I'm excited. I'm going next month, the Cannabis Marketing Summit to participate, but I want to now plan a little drive-by to the Seaton Smith location and go check it out personally. And kind of, you know, I think for me, that's where some of the fun is, especially with the podcast, especially having guests like yourself on the show, being able to see these things in real time and in real life, which is what the consumer is experiencing, right? They are purchasing these products. They're shopping at these dispensaries. They are supporting these brands. And, you know, you touched on it. And I'm really curious, especially given your background, I can ideate what I think, you know, makes a brand. But you said, you know, a brand is not just your packaging, your label, the swag that you produce or you merch and sell. So from your perspective, I mean, you did touch a little bit too on the creative, the art, kind of all these other attributes and perhaps, you know, kind of side by side industries that can play very easily with cannabis. Would you say that those are some of the influences that you incorporate into what is a brand or brand's identity? And how do you start to shape and look at these businesses that are coming to you? Like Huff, for example, that does have this already established brand presence, but is now trying to penetrate into the cannabis market. Again, you mentioned California being so saturated where if you're not ready, there's another brand ready to come step into your spot. When someone comes to you and then they're like, I, I want help with my brand. What do you tell them? What do you look at to give that brand a new identity or to actually create a brand from perhaps nothing in this industry that is cannabis? Great question. I would say we absolutely pull from outside influences, I, I guess, to put it simply. The team that joined us here, and, and I should note that ABC Brand Design is a family business. It's a joint venture with my wife, Johanna, and I. And so we're the principals and the team that joined us who came from Candescent. All of us have varied background and, and interests, but there is a commonality or a common thread, I should say, about culture and how we view the world and how we view consumerism and our philosophical sort of worldview around what motivates and the psychology associated with that. And so this is the beginnings of what makes a brand and what compels consumers. And, you know, what I would say to operators or people who are brand marketers who are thinking about, who maybe understand there's continuity associated with brand expression and making sure that you show up the same way every single time. But I would challenge those brand marketers and those operators to go even deeper, right? It, it's about intrinsic values. It's about your reason for being. It's about the difference you want to make in the world. Even, even if the world is within your regional footprint, right? It doesn't have to be the world in, in totality. It just means your world or the world where you're trying to create an impact. So I, I would challenge people to say, you know, it's, it's a value system. Brands are a value system. It's your reputation. 
and uh, Shada, you're a brand. And then to be blunt is a brand and I'm a brand. And then my agency is a brand. And then we work on behalf of organizations who are brands. And so it's shorthand. It's what you want to be known for. And where the investment for some people, and I think a lot of people miss this point, this next point, the investment in brand is one that pays back dividends when you make mistakes as one example, right? So I made mention of the variability in the industry that we work in, which is cannabis, right? Everybody's going to miss a yield from time to time or something's going to happen. Whatever may come, whatever challenges may come, right? It's going to impact your customer, which in this instance, we're talking about retailers. Now, you're going to miss a cycle. The market demand requires, you know, that customers, retailers in this instance, fulfill that space. What I'm trying to get at is there's mindshare associated with your brand and there's elasticity associated with that brand. And so you experience it in your everyday life, whether People can acknowledge it or not. You shop the same sneakers, you shop the same jeans, you shop the same sort of housewares or whatever, because you have a good experience. Sometimes if you pay close attention to your own sort of behavior, maybe you can look back in your past and be like, I'm going to hold off until the brand that I really likes has availability or mm, I don't want to scrimp on quality because really I have a good experience with brand X that I, I normally like. And then you know, the gold standard there is if you're willing to pay more as, you know, for that brand, right? So there's certainly plenty of sneaker, you know, manufacturers, but there's a reason why Nike is who they are and command such premium pricing uh, for what they do. So I would say your brand is your reputation. It's your shorthand. It is the totality of everything that you have working together in harmony, in consistency, and making sure that that message is effective and is targeted for a very specific audience. I like to say, go narrow and deep, right? Like know who your customer is and then go to all extent to kind of service them and, and surprise and delight them. I couldn't agree more. I think and it's becoming even more increasingly important as we transition, I wouldn't say exclusively leaving out the physical world, but certainly into a more digital world, you have to be more conscious of the touch points that you're able to have with a consumer on a more frequent basis. Now, too, when you have e-commerce and opportunities to be online, especially when it comes to advertising and doing things digitally. And so I observed one of the things that you, I think, have executed really well that I wanted to pick your brain on a little bit further, which is certainly some brands, especially from a marijuana perspective, you can really only transact in a physical world, right? You're not able to necessarily make sales online, but now in this, you know, transitioning day and age of COVID and certainly Web3, you are seeing more technologies being incorporated into the cannabis industry. So whether you're able to do delivery or you have some aspect of your business, maybe it's incorporating merchandise. So you are selling merch to your consumers on a website versus this retail experience. Then you kind of get into the physical where maybe Seed & Smith being the example, they are their own brand. So they have their own dispensary and their own products mm -hmm. versus a brand perhaps like Candescent where they are being sold into dispensaries. The question really is around your navigation between the physical and the digital world when it comes to brands and bringing these brand touch points to life trying to figure out where is the customer and how do you have that message in a market where you are forced into certain channels just by nature of what is regulated or legal? 
and also the opportunity of where new trends of consumers are hanging out, being a little bit more digitally native and things like that. Yeah. So for us and, and our team, we're cannabis experts by way of helping develop and build the portfolio of brands that is at Candescent over the course of you know, the last couple of years. Prior to that, we operated in the real sort of world context of marketing, which is being driven by D2C. So in some ways, you know, the stuff that we're doing in cannabis is rudimentary from a technology perspective. Now, that being said, it is changing and you pointed that out. And so we do have cannabis customers who are placing a premium on last mile delivery or just delivery in general, right? And so through those means, so, so certainly you'd be familiar with like Ease or Amuse, or these are just some of the larger delivery partners here in California. And so when we're working on behalf of a brand who has a partner like an Amuse or an Ease, they're co-marketing opportunities for us to illuminate and amplify our clients' brands in a way that reaches consumers. And certainly from a technology perspective, there's types of API, you know, plugged in real-time inventory that makes delivery capable. That's powered by some of these delivery partners. So we're seeing that chasm close and it was an accelerated for sure by COVID, right? So when we were launching brands during COVID, we had to pivot quickly and accelerate our sort of curbside delivery and pickup strategy, just as our customers were pivoting to, to becoming more digitally savvy and understanding that, hey, you know, the world is for all intents and purposes shut down for, you know, certain moments or certain times within the COVID sort of time period, but cannabis was deemed essential. And so, hey, you know, people, we saw people loading up, but you, know, you couldn't go inside, you had to be touchless. And so that was really great for those people who, you know, like us, who'd done sort of direct consumer marketing before. And so while it's great to see, you know, that gap or that chasm closing because ultimately, you know, frictionless is the way to go. And, you know, another industry is called Omnichannel. And that is you place an order and you can pick it up at Target, for example, if you were selling something through Target. So we're seeing that alignment happen here in California. And I think we'll continue to see that happen more frequently across the country. But other than that, if you're not working towards that last mile connected point to the end user and consumer, it's really about education. There's just a lot of blocking and tackling or, you know, depending on the day, I might use metaphors like chop wood, carry water, like the basics, you know, and there's the premium value placed on executing the basics at a high level. And just because they're basic doesn't mean that they're easy to do. Try educating, you know, a staff of 150 bud tenders. It's not easy. So we do a lot of that on behalf of our clients. Again, our reason for being in our thesis is that if our prospective clients can look at us as a tremendous value add based on our experience, our acumen, and our high level of execution, and we can do that at a cost comparison premium that would, you know, it's going to save them money, then it's a win-win for both of us. And so that's what we do here. That's what we enjoy doing. You could think of it on a pendulum or plane, everything from brand engineering to brand design, all the way to executional capability. And we don't do that for all clients. We mentioned Seedsmith a couple of times. We did that for them and we kind of build them into a position where should they have the resources, they can internalize the marketing to our way and we can move on and do something else. But should they see the realized value and not want to internalize that and keep a sort of a lower headcount, then we, we're a good solution for those type of prospects.
Yeah, no, it makes sense. Certainly, there's definitely different needs for different businesses and different brands. And obviously, I think it sounds, you know, silly to say it out loud, but we all have different goals. I think everybody's assumption is we all want the same thing out of cannabis or even cannabis legalization. But in a lot of the conversations I'm having, especially through the podcast, it's been you know, realized how varying opportunity is in the industry and what is actually tangible. Certainly you are limited based on the geography that you are operating in. If you are a California cannabis brand, you have a much different runway just by nature of what is accessible to you or perhaps the saturation of the market. And so it's more competitive compared to, let's say, a state like New Mexico that just came online and it's fairly reasonable to get a license and operate in the state. So you're not seeing the same dynamic happen just quite yet. I'm sure it's probably going to come eventually. I think we'll you know, all experience that as we do go towards some sort of federal legalization or decriminalization. Hello, just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure, my company, Restart CBD. Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister, so we are family-owned and women-owned. We do operate a brick-and-mortar in Austin, so if you ever find yourself in Central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide, and we carry a wide range of CBD products. We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at restartcbd.com and use code to be blunt for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks. And let's go back to the show. But to kind of follow up with that a little bit with this retail experience, I think I'm just so fascinated by the approach to the non-traditional but functioning as a dispensary, right? I mean, you're going into a dispensary because you are purchasing cannabis products, but especially coming from, I'm sure, California background, which my observation of California cannabis is rethinking cannabis. You know, it's a look and feels different. Like, yes, there's flour in the jar, but you're receiving it in this, you know, makeup packaging or design and with gold diamonds around it or, you know, whatever the case may be, it's this luxurious kind of consumer driven brand, tangible experience that you're creating. And so I look at dispensaries as this means to an end. We need dispensaries because not every brand is able to go direct to consumer or maybe they can't operate in delivery because, you know, Maybe listeners don't know this, but California is really one of the only states that has pioneered and had delivery. It's now coming online in other markets. But I think Colorado doesn't even really have full on delivery just quite yet. So these technologies seem very accessible in some capacities and also not possible in others. Right. So going back to that traditional dispensary model, it's kind of like we need to play there, whether we are the dispensary, we're the brand wanting to get into the dispensary. But the question really is around people are reimagining what the dispensary experience looks like. And so when you are looking at these dispensaries, whether your client is the dispensary or they're wanting to open a dispensary, how do you envision kind of the cannabis dispensary of the future? And what are the components that make up that environment? Because it isn't all just going to be transactions. I was picking up again, I know we're talking about Seaton Smith a lot, but they're, you know, your premier kind of client that fits this conversation. And I want to keep it specific to your experience, but they're doing so much more. It's more merchandise feel. It's more of this, you're coming in and you're having this whole experience of cannabis. I don't know how else to articulate it without having been in it myself, but knowing from being in other dispensaries, 
actually I did, I went to the Stephen Smith tour. I went to their, I guess, original facility. That was kind of their claim to fame. I think originally they were one of the first that was allowing consumers to walk through and actually see the plants. So when I was in Denver a couple months ago, this would have been probably last year, I got to see plants right. and their dispensaries right off of it. Like that to me was at the time new. Now everybody's kind of, you know, oh, I got plants in my dispensary or here's, you know, the grow room. What is kind of the new next wave of dispensaries and that traditional kind of retail experience that you're seeing cannabis be exposed to or be inspired to create, if yeah. that makes sense? You know, it's interesting. And I'd like to try to pride myself on being a continuous learner. And so having some experience in the Colorado market, as well as now the Illinois market with some of our clients, it's interesting to see the commoditization of flower in comparison or in contrast to the proliferation of so many branded flower packages in California. So there's significant sort of contrast with mature markets, driving prices down, there's not a lot in terms of what you can brand in a very meaningful way, unless you've got some sort of intellectual property or, you know, widely regarded, you know, superior technique that's going to yield something that would warrant a branded label. And so it's interesting because you're asking about the future of retail and the future of how this industry, in my opinion, is going to adapt as consolidation continues to happen. And I think ultimately across the country, we will get to a level of commoditization and price sort of structure that makes uh, buying flour, you know, very easy to understand, very easy to, in Colorado, they call it, I think it's in that, you know, a lot of flowers is in like these bulk container jars. I think they call it the deli. Yeah. The deli style. Right. And that's, you know, you can extrapolate that back and you can look, you know, there's a medicinal sort of archetype that happened there where you kind of go up to the pharmacy counter, if you will, and you talk to someone more educated than you and you let them know what your symptoms are, anxiety or glaucoma or whatever it is that you may be troubled with. And you, a bag is realized with flour in it that is some, some strain that you've never heard of to help you with your condition. And so we've seen an evolution of that model in California. It's not been that so much. It's California. We're very lifestyle driven state. Consumers here are conditioned and cultured and used to finding their own brand within brands, right? You might be someone who's a very outdoorsy, sports-minded person, and you're looking for a brand that looks like REI to you or connotates the same sort of spirit. And so that's really what California has been about. And that's why we have so many slivers of you know, urban type brand communication, or we talked about candescent and that's very luxury. And that was pulling cues from jewelry and fashion and more bespoke shopping experiences like at Neiman's, you know. So that's to say that there is a kaleidoscope of sort of taste and interest and personalities here in California. But I think in the future, we're going to have a sort of consolidated, condensed version of that where Widely, it will be commoditized flour, but for mid and top shelf, you'll have brands that command a premium. And we're starting to see that in Colorado in particular, there's a brand called 14er that's quite good at doing this. And that's obviously in a consolidated mature market. So I think California is also going to fall sort of along these lines, but it's, it's really interesting to work with some of these big guys who need to delineate and create this brand architecture that is not always under the same brand banner, right? Because if you're, you know, a manufacturer of concentrates, uh, you know, and 
extractor and creating sometimes dispensary people don't want that same brand in a flower brand because the elasticity of that what i would call like the brand uh, rubber band kind of snaps it's like you guys can be good in this lane but we don't really want you for this lane because there's specialists that are better and so it's interesting to kind of see this thing all play out in real time i think we're all trying to figure it out to be honest with you <laughs> i couldn't agree more i think it's come up in a couple conversations so i'll kind of play it out with you and see kind of what your thoughts are just kind of on that vein right so i had a gentleman on the podcast from Oklahoma, and one of his tips was around, I think similarly to what you're saying, there's a couple of ways. You're a brand, and let's say you have X, Y, or Z cartridges, and you're selling to maybe a more outdoorsy audience, and they're not really selling to a female audience. But you know that there's females who are interested in concentrates. In this particular instance, I will go as far as say, because I purchased this was what he was saying, that brand didn't even change the integrity of the cartridge, they just repackaged it to a different brand identity. So here's this, you know, brand umbrella X, and they have this outdoorsy brand, and they have this more feminine brand. And when the packaging is the same product, but they're able to now extend their brand into new conversations to attract to a different market based purely on the aesthetics of the packaging. And then I think there's another layer of it, right, where you can do other types of products. So from flour to concentrates, but maybe under the brand umbrella, they do create different sub brands. I am maybe curious from your perspective, what that looks like in terms of a brand's approach to being able to do that in the market effectively, because aren't consumers smart? Like sometimes when I find out, oh, this brand does all these other brands. Well, isn't it just the same brand just repackaged? I don't think it's bad per se, but when you are looking at kind of creating differentiation in the marketplace, but there's also then so much saturation in the marketplace mm -hmm. and you realize a lot of people are perhaps white labeling from certain suppliers, it gets really interesting and murky. And again, I'm not here to say white labeling is bad because that's how people operate their business. And there are some pretty large successful brands, even in the CBD space that are white label brands. So as a brand expert, what is your take on kind of that approach? Without question, consumers are incredibly savvy. And I caution any and all brand marketers to underestimate them at their own peril, right? They're tuned in, they're educated, they're paying attention, they're asking questions, and you never want to take consumers lightly. You want to evoke excitement, you want to compel them to action. And that's not easy to do in this sort of digitally equipped world that we live in. So authenticity plays through. And so what you're describing, Jada, is a half-ass way, if I could be so blunt, uh, to be blunt, right, of a workaround. And that is not a brand. It's a workaround. And it's a short-term solution to a problem that's not really being addressed. And so that's what I would tell our clients, because consumers will quickly escalate to the logic that you started to articulate. But isn't this just that from those same guys and they're making it pink so they can sell to a woman? Like that doesn't check out, right? Like what is different about this product? And then think of it this way. You're going to bring home a pre-roll pack or case packaging, a jar of flour, a dram of concentrate, and you're going to put it on your bedroom nightstand or on your dresser. And it's going to be next to photos and pictures and jewelry and watches and picture frames. And does it fit your lifestyle? Is that a brand? You know, if you're a minimalist and you have like, I don't know, maybe bad choice of words here, but like a hippy dippy sort of graphic that might not work with your mid-century sort of, my point here is like, 
there's room. There's so many different type of people who enjoy flower, either medicinally or recreationally. And they're looking for ways to connect with something that's meaningful, whether they're choosing, you know, like look at Target, for example, or use them as sort of critical mass. They've got a design aesthetic with their private label or their, I should say, their own house brand, right? That speaks to that sort of core demographic that shops there that wants, you know, very simple, straightforward, easy to understand, good for the environment. All of these sort of calculus plays into your reason for being. And so if you're just relabeling something, that's not really a brand in my estimation. A brand goes much deeper. And this would go to the beginning of the conversation when I talked about the intrinsic values. Yeah, I think it's getting really murky in the industry from my observation because there is a lot of, you know, people want quick wins, but I always stand by longevity and investing in things that will not just be here today or tomorrow, but potentially, hopefully in terms of, you know, what's legal, we'll still be here in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I think that's what really inspires me about a brand's identity. I mean, you mentioned REI earlier. They, to me, are such a beacon of a brand because I resonate with it. I loved, I will always remember, I grew up with my grandmother going Black Friday shopping. I know it has, you know, some different opinions based on, you know, how you kind of interpret consumerism, but I loved it. I loved that experience with my grandma. It was so special to me because that was our time to shop together. But then as I got older, REI came up with this campaign and it was, you know, spend Black Friday out in the black, like go camping, be outside. And my jaw just dropped. I was like, oh my gosh, that's me too. Like, okay. And I started seeing Black Friday in a different sense. And changing my habits to be more aligned with who I was growing up into, which was somebody who very much loves the outdoors and loves spending time connecting in nature. And that campaign has just always resonated. It's made an imprint in my brain. I'm an REI member, a co-op member. I don't even spend enough to get any significant percentage back, but I just love that I'm a part of it. And when they have their sales, you know, their garage sales, I show up to them occasionally. And I identify with, you know, who REI has made their brand around. And so they, to me, are always somebody that I look at of how are they doing it? What are they doing it? What are they, you know, kind of envisioning for how they're bringing this brand to life, to the consumer? And so trying to apply that into the cannabis industry, I think what I acknowledge a lot of times is we have a lot of good ideas or hopes, but then the actuality, putting it into practice, we get hung up based on some of these things, whether it is what I can actually put on a label or package how I can market, what channels can I be marketing? What language can I be using on social media? So my product gets marketed to the right person, but I can't maybe say what it is explicitly all the time to then, you know, understanding what are these maybe non-direct to consumer, but ancillary touch points that a brand might have. Maybe they're sponsoring a music festival or even doing a podcast, right? This is kind of traditional media, but non-traditional in the sense of this is a brand activation. I mean, you were just acknowledging too, you are a brand, I'm a brand, we have businesses, the podcast is a brand. This is a brand exercise, in my opinion, of getting in front of you know people and letting them know who you are and what you're about and kind of tapping into the ethos of who we perhaps are or businesses at that level. And I see it working in some capacities in the cannabis industry, but then I think there are certainly some downfalls too, especially in markets like California, which I want to touch on too. I mean, you know, I can't not mention you're at Hall of Flowers right now. It is such a known event in terms of bringing together the best of the best in the cannabis industry. So maybe the question to kind of follow up that thought of mine is, 
How many brands are perhaps at Hall of Flowers right now who are new brands and how many brands have maybe been in the industry, let's say five years, kind of what is the mix of the market in California as the snapshot as cannabis aspires to be having longevity and, you know, evolving as times continue to, you know, evolve despite the chaos that we have to navigate based on everything, you know, we've been talking about from packaging and labels and regulations, et cetera. So I'll give you my highly scientific sort of eyeball test. All right. So get ready for this. I'm going to say that 75% of the exhibitors here at Hall of Flowers, I'm in Palm Springs currently, are less than three years old. Wow. Yeah. So that the inverse would be 25% are over three years and older. And so that's dynamic, like defined, right, in terms of an industry. But it's really telling, you know, you talk about, I think for some people, investing in brand and investing in the engineering or the calculus that goes into this and it is perceived luxury, right? Like a thing that I would get around to doing, and I'm a business owner, so, you know, I'm subject to, to the same sort of inefficiencies. And that is sometimes you don't want to make that investment or you feel as though that's unnecessary, you know, that's an unnecessary spend or things are more critical. But I would argue in hindsight and experience, launching inefficiently is terribly expensive. Recalling packaging because you got the compliance information wrong is terribly inexpensive. Expensive uh, Mistakes are terribly expensive to correct. And you only get one chance to make a first impression. So that rings true in this industry. And so I would say, you know, focus on your branding, focus on, on getting that engineering right so that a team and a culture that are aligned. And then that message is through everything that you do tactically, whether it's your website or email marketing, your SMS marketing, your trade show environment and what a 3D experience feels like. You don't want to be making this stuff up as you go. It's very challenging and it's very costly to make those mistakes and misalignments. They confuse people and they make people pause where there should be no pause. You want to amplify, you know, your greatest attributes and you want to minimize your weaknesses. That's just good business, you know, sort of intelligence and one-on-one type stuff, but you'd be surprised how many people get that wrong. And, and I would say, furthermore, founders have to be careful about making the brand themselves. The brand should be the totality of the vision and the expression of that and something that is sustainable and ownable from a competitive positioning perspective. So you know, it's great if you're into, you know, hot rod culture and motorcycles and biker culture and great, make a cannabis brand that, that represents that audience and stay true to who you are. But if you're not that, then then don't do that. Right. So that was just an example of, of, you know, when founders can kind of double down on what it is that they represent because they're bringing that community and that culture and you're you know, into the cannabis conversation. If you don't align so strongly one way or the other, then um, it's not good to artificially, you know, make something up, hire someone like, you know, my agency or yourself, Shada, and let us help uncover what makes you already great that you might be missing. I couldn't agree more. I think that's where I think sometimes to your, you know, point, the observation is people want to be everything for everybody and they lose a little bit of who they are. But there is, at least from my understanding, enough pie to go all around. I know it doesn't seem like that always in the industry, but the more that you try to stray away from who you are, the more I think the educated consumer is going to catch on or realistically, you're not going to be able to sustain it. 
because you can't do everything. That is crazy, though, about the amount of brands that are new, or at least the perception of new brands in the California market, because I do think people assume that because it's so saturated, there's not opportunity for new brands. So I think it is kind of a dual opinion of, yes, there's a lot of new people coming in. They're trying to make it. Will those brands last beyond the three, five-year mark? Maybe, maybe not. I think there's a lot of things that go into Again, that longevity of a brand. My question for you is, and I think it's, you know, kind of an age old question. I have to be not just everything to everybody, but from a brand perspective, do you usually recommend your clients do trade shows and, you know, physical events and they're on all the social media channels? And if TikTok is the next, you know, social media platform, they got to be on TikTok to bring their brand. Or do you try to steer them into a direction that perhaps makes the most sense for their brand? So using the biker example, maybe their audience is not on TikTok. So it's a waste of time to be on TikTok versus I think sometimes the perceived marketing messaging is, I got to do it all. I got to be everywhere. I got to have my opinion, my brand on all these different touch points just to have it. But perhaps maybe that, you know, it devalues your brand because you're, I think the saying is like, if you're everywhere, then you're nowhere. Right. Right. You're maybe doing too much. Yeah. I don't think there is a prescriptive, you know, one suite of services or you know, anything prescriptive, one way that fits every type of brand. So I, I, to answer your question, it would be the latter of the two scenarios. We kind of take where they are today and understanding what's urgent, what's hot, what needs to get done, and then address it from that perspective while still keeping, you know, our eye on the bigger picture of making sure that they're showing up in a way that is going to yield the highest return on investment and make no mistake about it. You know, we are commercially minded marketing and designers. Right. And so we understand that margins are razor thin in cannabis in general, not to mention California cannabis. And so everything that we do, we want to do in a meaningful way that helps move the needle for them. I can't stress that enough that because we are commercially minded, again, we're partially the team that helped develop cannabis candescent and candescent portfolio brands. So, you know, the charge there is really efficacy and efficiency and not making those mistakes. And so I would say to prospective clients who are having conversations with us is we kind of learn where they are. And a lot of what we do, frankly, because the nature and the, and the sort of constraints associated with working in the cannabis vertical, that is the dispensary model, it's really about education. It's really about training bud tenders. It's really about making sure the sales staffs understand. And that's on the sell-in side. And then on the sell through side, creating that awareness. And so will it make sense for our clients to do trade show? It depends. It depends on what they're, you know, are they maximizing their opportunity in terms of the product that they can inventory? And if so, then, you know, without maybe an infusion of cash, it might not make sense for them to go get more orders because that's going to compound the challenges for them in the short term. Are they starting out new? Is there strategic relationships with key accounts like MedMen or whoever else across the country or in, you know, any respective state and those buyers are going to be there, then maybe that's the only time that you have to get in front of those people. And so you want to make sure your first impression is strong and that you're doing the, the homework ahead of time to ensure those meetings happen. So that's just some of the strategic guidance that we might, you know, provide clients and then help them execute at a very high level to support that. I love it. Final question. When you are looking at the future of cannabis from a branding and design perspective, what excites you about that opportunity? There's so many talented people coming into the cannabis space now from 
packaging designers, to graphic designers, to motion designers, to new media designers. And I'm talking metaverse and, and VR and all of that stuff. And I, I just can't wait to see the talent of those individuals who might be working in music right now, or might be working in fashion and see what they might do to kind of elevate kind of what we're doing currently It's still very, very early days, as you know, in the cannabis industry. And we still have a lot of different, you know, interpretations and applications and, you know, medicinal and recreational points of view and all of that stuff. And that whole myriad of, of influences is what kind of brings the beautiful people of the world who enjoy plants, you know, plant medicine or flower together. And so I love that. And then just adding another layer of design integrity and, and really sort of elevated positioning is, is something that we look forward to in terms of contributing, but also us seeing others, you know, sort of contemporaries looking left, looking right, whether it's in New York or in Los Angeles who are doing amazing things. And for us to be a part of that, I think, I think there's room for, for that collective creative spirit and high tide rises on boats is what I say. I agree with that. I have one actual final question because you just made me think of it. From your perspective, I know, you know, as a creative, there's a lot of influences that inspire you maybe to like distill it down into a cannabis inspiration kind of vision board. Aside from the brands that you've worked with, mm -hmm. what brands are exciting you and why? Are they doing something unique where they're making an NFT or are they doing a partnership where it's non-cannabis, but it's their brand and it's some fashion designer? Like what, what do you see happening? And you're like that, that is cool. And now I'm inspired to do bigger, better, more. Yeah. You know, I used to be sort of like this brand aficionado when I was kind of coming up and could answer this question very, very easily. I think now what inspires me more than just sort of like the visceral brand expression is the engineering that goes into a brand to make them cut through the noise. Right. So there are agencies that we look up to are really, really great at launching direct to consumer brands that are far outside the cannabis space, mind you. But to do so in a way that, you know, you see it in subways or, you know, you see advertising in subways or billboards, or you might see like a viral clip that might show up on YouTube or in your social handles. And, and they do it at, at a taste level that, that is very, very high and an execution level that is equally high in a way that makes you go, Hmm. Like I never really thought of like, you know, how get ready for this. A rectile dysfunction could be cool, you know? So there's a brand called Hims who does just an amazing job. And a couple of years ago, I was turned on to them because I was watching the World Series and they had a Hims logo that was just very, very simple behind home plate, behind the catcher. And I looked it up and it was like they made ED, I guess you call it, or and they do hair loss stuff as well. I, I, I should be more versed on them, but I was just blown away that they could capture my attention. And then I think good brand communication evokes an emotion. It creates action. I would say the, the best, most inspiring thing that I've seen in the last six months, and geez, I, I should know better. I want to say it was, it, it might've been OpenSea or Coinbase, or maybe, you know, Shade It, but the Super Bowl there was an ad and it just had a QR code bouncing up and down, up and down. And it was one of those cryptocurrencies and or marketplaces. And I was like, this is amazing. The production value was so great, but still the cost was so minimal that I was like, this is 10 out of 10. It was just a QR code. And the people at our house who we, we were hosting a little small uh, Super Bowl party, they were just like taking their phones out. And I'm like, 
that's that's what it's about. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com. 